0: Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. We want to know what you think about our podcast. You've been listening to me for almost three years now, and I want to hear from you. I have some very specific questions, including what you like about our podcast and where we should be going next. The important part is I really want your opinion. I'm looking to connect with 50 listeners from no more than 10 minutes who are willing to share your thoughts. It's simple to sign up, Go to urbanfarm.org and look at the top menu, sign up there. I look forward to chatting. In nature, we don't find closed loop systems. We find circular systems where energy and resources are part of a loop repeating itself endlessly and sustaining those systems. Growing food should be a circular system too, and aquaponics is a perfect example. Aquaponics uses natural cycles where fish feed plants and plants feed fish. Let us teach you how to start your own fish-powered garden in a few easy steps. Just text GROWFISH to 33444 or visit IWANTTOGROWFISH.com and you'll receive our free webinar on how to grow your own fish-powered garden. Today on our podcast, we have a first-generation farmer who is helping others find healing through farming and growing healthy food. We're talking with Stephanie Norton about heirloom small plot urban farming. Stephanie is a retired chief petty officer and decorated military veteran with almost 20 years of hands-on entrepreneurial experience. She is the co-owner and founding farmer of National City's Dickinson Farm and Dickinson Larder. Her journey to heirloom farming began when she purchased the wallace dickinson house while she was deployed with the u.s coast guard port security department stephanie designed the dickinson farm the first licensed farm in national city since the 1900s she then launched pharmacy a curated csa and anti-inflammatory meal prep service designed for caregivers and patients receiving ongoing outpatient care as well as for individuals and families on specialty diets Welcome to the show today, Stephanie. Are you ready to rock the Urban Farm Podcast? Let's do it! Sweet! So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today?
1: Absolutely. We never, ever expected to be doing what we're doing. I can absolutely tell you that with 100% confidence.
0: (laughs) I love that.
1: (laughs) We bought the historic... Wallace Dickinson house and property after this, you know, years prior when we first started dating, we came up with an almost obnoxious level of wants out of a piece of property in Southern California, knowing that it was probably just that some dreamy list that we would never achieve. So we found it on a lark. My husband would tell you as the paint was drying in the previous house that we were restoring, we found the property and it was really going to be just like an entertaining family backyard, big pool, barbecue area, have a lot of fun. And then I came came back from deployment and couldn't walk. So our life changed pretty significantly. We... (laughs) found out after being home for a little bit longer that I actually had undiagnosed Lyme that I had gotten bit during pre-deployment workups. Wow. Yeah. So by the time I got back from deployment, it was actually in my bones, my tissues, my muscles had started basically destroying me.
0: It'll do that. Both my sweetheart Heidi and I have Lyme.
1: It's a crazy disease that a lot of people don't know about and you don't realize how damaging it is until you live it.
0: Amen to that.
1: My doctor put me on a daily IV treatment and asked me to eat as clean as possible because I was basically... Basically, he was killing everything with those medications. So everything good and bad, my immune system would certainly suffer. And it was at that point that we realized that the town, we had just bought this big, beautiful piece of land and in house in, even though very close to San Diego, only house convenience be smarts. it did at the time. So we were spending all of our days in treatment. My husband was going to his duty at night and we figured out very quickly he couldn't cook. Mm. We just didn't have access to fresh, clean food. I kind of took it into my own hands to make that happen.
0: Wow. And this property that you bought with the pool, is that the one where you're at now?
1: It is. So it didn't have a pool. All it had was a big open space with a bunch of ice plants and some weed trees, very huge trees that we found out later were just weeds that it had overgrown. So we ripped it all out and started with about eight raised beds that were built by my family for me that were tall enough that I could sit on the edge. So if there were a day that I was having trouble bending over, that I could sit there. And that's where we started. And, you know, the joke is that we wanted two or three tomatoes and we ended up with 23. We realized how fertile that the local soil was.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. 23 tomato plants?
1: No, just tomatoes. Like each week, we just wanted a little bit, right? Just a little bit of clean food for me. And everything was just abundant. We were giving a lot of the food away, giving it to neighbors, giving it to a small co-op. And more and more people were asking to buy it from us. And then about halfway through our second season, the military decided to medically retire me from the line. My two-year treatment wasn't done in a year, you know, time constraints that they have. And they decided to medically retire me. And really it was kind of a moment of not knowing what I was going to do. I had kind of my next couple of deployments already planned out in my head, regardless of the fact that I was sick and in an IV chair. So my husband and I talked and he kind of talked along at heart with me and said, you know, you join the military to serve your country. I'll get a little chance. Too- Choked up, and now you're just serving the community. So let's do this. And we did.
0: Nice. I was right there with you getting choked up. <laughs> I could feel it. Wow. So you're a veteran. You came back from deployment. How is this affecting your experience with your farming business?
1: You know, certainly being a veteran. Being in the military, it teaches you so much and in such a quick time, you know, you don't have the luxury of needing a second chance to take a test or needing a little more time to learn that you have to just kind of jump in feet first and get the job done. And really with the farm, it was very similar, right? Like plants tell you really quickly if you screwed up.
0: Oh, yes, they do.
1: They really don't give you any leeway on that. For me, it was very similar in that, is that I have a mission, which is to grow food for myself, and I need to make sure I do it right. So if that means extra time spent learning or talking or getting wisdom from anybody I can, that's what I'll do because it was more important to me to have food that I could feel comfortable with and not have a reaction to than it was to try to come up with excuses why it was too hard. And I think the military aids in that belief, right? We're kind of indoctrinated into this, like we have a mission and you need to learn and do as quick as possible, certainly as safely as possible, but ultimately it still has to get done. It doesn't matter if it's hot outside. It doesn't matter if it's buggy it doesn't matter if it's just too hard you better figure out a way to get you and your shipmates together and get it done and that's really what we did
0: nice one of the things that you mentioned a little earlier you kind of referred to the amount of abundance that is showing up i've found from my small urban farm it's a third of an acre in north central phoenix that the level of abundance is sometimes mind-blowing. What have you found in that arena?
1: I would absolutely agree with you. I feel like there's something about this land in these urban environments that is just waiting to produce, right? Like it's just waiting for those kind of trifecta of perfect storm for it to get ready to come out. Nobody gives it a chance, right? Like they constantly think that we can't grow in these small spaces or we can't grow in an urban environment. It's just not true. I mean, last year we grew an heirloom. Varietal of zucchini, and we had in one 40-feet row, we had 1,400 pounds of zucchini come out of it, wow. squash, which is amazing. Yeah. And my husband was laughing. He's like, We've just figured out world hunger right now. <laughs> you know, like, who do we need to feed? So it is, especially if you're going to have a commercial farm, is really knowing what. 10 grow here and being willing to test to see what will and won't grow. But then more importantly, to having multiple revenue streams to have that produce go off the farm, you know, certainly community and local and retail people purchase it, but then chefs products, because sometimes it is way too much for anybody to handle.
0: Exactly. So walk me from, okay, I'm going to grow some food, some healthy food for me to all of a sudden you have a CSA. All right, maybe not all of a sudden, but you work to the point of having a CSA and you're providing others. How did that happen?
1: We started growing for me. And in that process, when we first started, we didn't come from a farming background. We're both from Southern California, coastal, definitely small backyards, not a lot of space. So this isn't something that we have experience in. And we were growing just seeds that we got right. Go to Home Depot, get some seeds, get a tomato plant, get some stuff going. But I was still having reactions to food. We also were getting a small CSA from a local farm, but I was still having really negative reactions to food. And we did had some test run for food sensitivities because when you're on high level meds. Sometimes you end up with sensitivities. It's like when they say don't drink grapefruit juice when you're taking certain meds. There's just countering addictions, right? right? I started to read a lot about heirloom varietals at that point and finding out that some people weren't having the same history in response. So specifically, one of the worst that I was having was corn, conventional corn. I would have twitches really bad. My legs would shake almost a mini seizure when I would eat anything with corn in it. It happened fairly quickly. I'd never had that before. I'm certainly a California kid. You know, rolled tacos are my thing. And my husband was to the point that he was like, I don't care. You're not eating corn anymore. I can't live with taking care of you like this as one more thing that we're dealing with. It's not safe for you. And I convinced him to let us try heirloom corn. And when my dad and I were out there and we were pulling sweet, corn off and eating it. And I didn't have a reaction. Literally the next week, we ripped everything out and went heirloom for all of our varietals. All the things about GMO and conventional and everything that you hear no longer became kind of what is just said in the static around you. It wasn't anecdotal anymore. It was something that I was able to see the difference and other people like me needed it. So it really became that kind of catalyst for us to change this perspective to say, this is bigger than just me and me having food. For people that it matters to, just like me, for people that have some sensitivities that are going through treatment protocols, it matters. People, it doesn't matter to, it's just really amazing food. So for us, it was kind of this like light that went off that said, okay, now we're in a situation where I have the ability to focus on this. I'm getting retired from the military. This epiphany that it's bigger and more important than just growing food. It's growing safe, clean, you know, non-hybridized varietals that people that have issues no longer have issues with. And if it's happening to me, there's more than me. There's at least five other people in my treatment room every day. And there's hundreds more out there that need help. So it was really kind of these epiphanies that were hitting, I don't know, every few months of just driving us closer and closer into doing what we're doing. And then just talking to people, listening to people and building our business around it.
0: Yeah. You know, it's really amazing When you start paying attention to the food you're putting in and the reaction you're having, I always encourage people to keep a food journal for a month or two and see where the correlations are at because there's a lot that can happen there. And I contend that the food that we have in our grocery stores, it impacts everybody. It's just there's some people with Lyme disease or other things that are more sensitive to it, but it's still affecting you.
1: Absolutely. I talk to people that say, oh, no, I can't have whatever. Right. So I can't eat eggplant because I end up with migraines after it. I'm like, "Okay, are you sure it's eggplant or are you buying organic or non-organic? And they'll say like, oh, I don't waste my money on that organic. It's like, "Okay, well, it could quite possibly be that you're sensitive to pesticides.
0: Yeah, you, you don't
1: know because you haven't tried anything, right? We're so disconnected from our food anymore. Mm-hmm. Everybody believes that because there's food and it comes from a grocery store, it's therefore somehow significantly safer than somebody walking onto a farm and getting fresh produce. And it's just so strange to me or people that don't know that carrots grow in the ground. It's just really, really strange to me.
0: You call your farm an heirloom farm. We already got the picture on why you're using seeds. Why do you call it an heirloom farm?
1: Really how we're growing is more in that vein as well. We're on historic property. Wallace Dickinson was considered one of the top horticulturists of the area in the 1800s. He had groves and groves all around us of citrus and olive trees. His wife had a kitchen garden, which is about in the same place as our original raised boxes. We grow our plants as close as what we know that they would have grown in the wild. So like our tomatoes, we like completely grow as this kind of bramble vine. They get really bushy, they lay over. And when they're ready to come out, they kind of tell us because they completely die off and get hollow and we pull them. We have hops that we do the same way. Hops wasn't meant to completely be grown on a 30 foot pole with one line that you pull down once a year. So we really try to allow the plants to grow the way they would have. And then with that, be less stressed. It may not look as traditional as a commercial farm, but our plants are, from our perspective, certainly less of a pest load that we have to manage. They taste a ton better, and they're beautiful in kind of their own right. Nobody can deny that an heirloom tomato is tasty, even though it's kind of got a little bit of an ugly side to it.
0: Right. Well, You use the word traditional farm. I think we're at a point in our food revolution that we're redefining what a traditional farm looks like. Tell me about that.
1: Absolutely. I think that you know it's a hard conversation. We have people come here and they'll say, oh, this is a garden. I'm like, well, we're licensed like a farm. We're a farm. And I try to educate people in what it means to be a farm, whether it's the legal regulatory definition, and then get them to see that how that plays out is very different. It's really no different than like a car, right? So you have a car that say, you know, it can be a smart car, which is teeny tiny, or it can be a Lincoln, which is still a car, but bigger, right? It's just a different version of it. Uh-huh. And I think that farming is starting to show us that you can still, you know, under the most simple definition that the difference between gardening and farming is the intent to sell and the ability to have more than a thousand dollars in revenue. You can do that in a lot of different places.
0: And a lot of different sizes of places as well.
1: Right. And, you know, hydroponics, people have no problem kind of thinking of a hydroponic building as a farm. But when they come to something that's you know on a small scale in somebody's backyard, that's a more interesting kind of change in their mindset. But it's been fun. I mean, it's been really an interesting conversation to have from everybody, from students to garden clubs to just our neighbors. And to see that we can produce, we can produce it safely, we can produce it within compliance. We're a financially viable farm and we built our business plan knowing that because of my disabilities, we had to have an employee. We have a three quarter time employee and we're still a financially viable farm. And I think those are the things that when people get caught up in what real farming is, kind of that finger quote, real farming, Uh they're not kind of looking at the whole landscape to say, there's a lot of different ways to do this. And more importantly, there's a lot of different ways to feed our community.
0: Right. For me, being an urban farmer or claiming you're an urban farmer really requires three things. You grow food, you share it. In a lot of cases, people, are selling their food, but you know, if you have an overabundance, you just share it with somebody and name your farm. The name your farm piece is is a really important piece because it starts building the social capital that we need in this revolution to have it be real. Does that make sense?
1: Right. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So, you call your space a pharmacy as well. And that's F A R M A C Y. Tell me about that.
1: So yeah, that was another one of those little epiphanies, right? Is that we knew that we were providing food to our community. We were providing food to my clinic. And then, but it wasn't anything talking about that kind of social collateral and that piece of it. It wasn't something that we really bragged about, right? We didn't talk to people about it. If somebody asked, we would definitely sell them food and kind of curate something specifically for them. But it wasn't something we jumped right in and said, oh, let me go charge this and make sure that people get this message. We were just doing what we were doing. And last year we went out to dinner with my infusion nurse who, of course, I saw every day of my life for two years straight. We were celebrating the holidays with her and she was asking about the farm and what we were doing and, you know, how things were going, who we were selling to. And I was explaining it to her. And of course I kept on saying, well, I'm selling, you know, we're selling to our community and our end goal is that people would walk here and totally explaining it to her. we just so proud and kind of beaming with what we had accomplished. And she said, Stephanie, your community is the people that sat next to you in IV chairs too. And I was like, oh yeah. And what I noticed and I think all of us are guilty of it is when somebody says something that's like true, right? That you haven't thought about, or maybe you thought about what you were intentionally kind of pulling away from right. for some reason, you get really kind of defensive, right? Like you're like, no, 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 no. Like, I know that I just didn't want to. So I had all these excuses. I didn't want to be intrusive. I didn't want to be this. I didn't want to be that. And ultimately the whole drive home, I was really upset. And I talked to my husband. I was like, why? You know, cause he comes saying, why are you upset? Like you adore her. You know what she's saying is true. And I said, I guess it's because I didn't want to be that one more person that told somebody that was sick what they needed to heal themselves. Mm. Right. Cause especially with Lyme, you get everybody's ideas oh, of yes. how to cure a bacterial infection. Right. Yep. I didn't want to be that person. I didn't want to be one more person that told them what they were doing wrong. And then she kind of really brought it back to reality, though, and said, that's not what you're doing. You have something that they need just like you needed. And you're almost being selfish by not telling them, by not giving it to them, by not being a part of their treatment protocol. And I sat with it through the holidays. And then in January, I called a chef that I work really close with that is used to working with heritage grains and heritage varietals and heirloom varietals. And knows how like our potatoes take longer to cook because they're not just full of water. And I said, what do you think of this idea of doing like, we'll do a curated CSA, and then we'll give you half of it and you make amazing meals for people that can't cook right now and we'll deliver it to patients. So it's one less thing. So they're getting healthy food and healthy varietals and it's really a part of their treatment protocol. And it's one less thing that their caregiver has to worry about when they get the diagnosis.
0: Right. That's a big one.
1: It is, you know, right? Like you get this diagnosis and you're almost deaf from the minute that they say it, whatever the diagnosis is, whether it's diabetes or Lyme or lupus, all of a sudden somebody changes your life. Your hearing goes, they're still talking. Your caregiver, if you're lucky enough to have them in the room with, you is now spinning on how am I supposed to help you stay alive and do everything that this doctor is telling us to do. And this is one more thing that they have to worry about. And that's exactly what it was for us. You know, my husband was lucky enough to get his duty schedule to be at night. But all that meant was he drove me to treatment, slept next to me in another IV chair, drove me home, went to work. And it really was like, I've lived it. I know how sucky that is. Yeah. I know that you start this like, I need somebody to fully take care of me to I can kind of take care of myself to, you know what, I'm cooking again. And that's what we did. We named it the pharmacy. I expected it to kind of maybe get a couple people, and we're at about 75% of our max of what we can take, and we're expanding onto another farm. Wow. So it's really, really exciting.
0: Wow. Congratulations.
1: Thank you. That
0: is so cool. And you're also doing a quarterly project. Tell us about that.
1: Sure. So that's locavore 8.8. And this kind of really is that catalyst of getting people to realize where their food comes from. People will say like, oh, there's no local farming isn't in San Diego, we're a surf town or we're, we're a military town. And they don't realize that we have the highest per capita of small farms of any county in the country. So I worked with a chef, Coral, and she has a restaurant and we of course have a farm Mm -hmm. and we do these locavore 8.8 dinners. So every quarter, two of them are at the restaurant, two of them are here on the farm. If they're here on the farm, where we set up the table is 8.8 yards from where the food is picked. And when you're at the restaurant, you're 8.8 miles away. And we have people come and they start here and they help pick some of the produce and then we take it to the restaurant and they cook dinner. And it's really amazing to get people to truly see where their food comes from.
0: Yeah, big time. So what does the 8.8 have to do with all of this?
1: So the 8.8 is when you're eating here on the farm, the table is 8.8 yards from where we picked the food for you. Got it. And when you go to the restaurant, it's 8.8 miles.
0: Got it. Really, the point there is the length. And you just arbitrarily picked 8.8?
1: We got lucky enough. I was mapping out for our farmhand how to get to the restaurant to do a delivery. And I was like, huh. 8.8. That's kind of interesting. And then we were harvesting some of our figs. And I was like, I wonder what the distance is where we set up the table. And I was like, well, that's kind of interesting. So yeah, it ended up just being a perfect little match.
0: Kismet, baby.
1: It is. It's funny where fate leads you.
0: That is so true. And our job as human beings is to pay attention for that, just like you did. Good job. Thank you. So I'm going to put you on the spot here. And I'd like for you to think back over the past four years. And is there one person, one story, one thing that happened that just when you think back to it, it's like, yes, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing?
1: Absolutely. So we were open on the second Saturday of the month and we do public tours and our farm stand is open, but we really chose that time. So all of our neighbors and kind of the people around us that were peeking through the fence and seeing what we were doing could come by and say hello. It was probably two or three months into it. And we had a woman come. I'm getting way too choked up this whole day. So this is I'm going to blame you on this. All
0: right. I'll take it.
1: So she came by and she was just chatting and bought some vegetables. And we were literally talking about the weather, not anything of any importance. So she bought some vegetables. She said, I'm so glad that I came by. She left. Next month, come by. She comes and buys some vegetables again. And I asked her how she liked everything. Because I always ask, like, is there something that you'd like to see us grow? You know, how are you doing? Do you need recipes? And she said, my father is in hospice care with cancer at our home. And they live like two blocks away. And he... He hasn't eaten. He eats very, very little. He doesn't have an appetite. He doesn't feel well after he eats. And I made him your beets and he ate them and he loves them. So can I have more beets? I was floored because my husband has lost both of his parents to cancer and I know what that life is. Uh And to be able to be like the one thing that he could eat and not just eat and hold down, but ask for and like, and that one little glimmer of just having a better day and having a meal and knowing that not only is it nutritious it's safe and that this is amazing food that can help people with their life even if it is just
0: one meal that's what i call epic thank you so much so i'm going to shift on you and i'd like for you to talk about a time you failed how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it
1: sure So this is one that as just a human being is difficult. Certainly as a military member, it's difficult. But I would say my biggest failure was my inability to transition back home. As service members, we jump feet first into a new country, into a new mission, and we just focus and we're 100% present and we get the job done. And for me, when I came home from my last deployment, I came home from Guantanamo Bay and I just didn't transition. I still spoke to my family as if I was barking orders. I didn't connect with my husband. I still kept everybody at an arm's distance. It was definitely life-changing, but it was almost life-ending how bad I transitioned home. It took a bit. I mean, it took probably a good year. And the more comical part of that and how amazing my husband is, is that six months into that transition home is the day we got married and he suffered through it and said, you'll break out of this. But what it taught me was that we've got to be present you know, like we get caught up in work and whatever that work is, whether it is the military or your civilian job or your church or this one thing that you always volunteer at. And we pick one or maybe two things that we're 100% present in and we focus all of our energy on. And we sometimes just forget everything else that's around us. And when we have to change our perspective or kind of made to focus on something else like I was when all of a sudden, you know, I'm on an island one day and I'm plunked into a house that I never really lived in until I got home, that you still have to be present and that there. there's... There's people around you that care about you, whether they're the people you work with, the people that love you. In this case, my fiance that had enough Faith and love in me to marry me anyway. And then I can tell you about six or eight months after we got married, he was like, There she is.
0: Nice. She's home now. How did you successfully make that shift?
1: In hindsight, for me, it was really my family that helped me make that shift. I don't know that it was something that I consciously did. You know, when I was like, Do this, do that, get away from me. I don't need this, you know, just really intense kind of perspective, they wouldn't give in. They wouldn't walk away. When I said, go away, like, I don't need you to be here. I don't need you to be this close to me. I need you to get work done. The answer wasn't just to take what I was saying and do it. It was instead to sit a little closer, to talk to me a little calmer, you know, to walk me through things. We ended up with a dog while I was deployed and play with the dog with me. So it was really, instead of doing what I think I would have not hold it against them at all if they would have just been like yeah whatever so get over it and kind of left me to my own dark place was instead just like overabundantly gushing on me with love which the most comical part of that is i have a very big tall burly husband that doesn't come across as he's really loving even though he is my father is a retired chief in the navy and my cousin was here at the time too and he got home as i was leaving for getmo he was coming home from afghanistan so all of them are very like intense manly men Uh uh-huh And for them to just like gush on me in their own way, you know, build the boxes for me when I needed them for food, when they were saying, Hey, why don't we on the way to treatment? Why don't we just stop by the beach and we can sit there for a little bit. And when I'm like, no, that's not productive. Let's get going. Their answer was like, well, I need that. Could you just let me do that?
0: I'm like, yeah, that's fine. Whatever. (laughs) Nice.
1: So they definitely kind of helped me see the presence that I was in, which was, you know, greatness. Really amazing people that truly love me in a town that's great to be home in.
0: Wow. I have to tell you, you got choked up a couple of times. I have multiple times since we started talking Oh, gotten a little choked up. This is epic. Your story is epic and you are amazing. Thank you. So out of all this, what do you consider your biggest success?
1: I think... Quite honestly, and I'm looking out my window right now from my office desk at the farm and the wind is kind of blowing in the flowers, it really is this farm. It's taking something like lime and taking something like a bad deployment and all the anger that comes from that and watching something literally beautiful sprout and grow. It's never a place that I thought I would be, but I don't even know what place I would want to be at right now
0: except this one. Nice. I just had this thought too. Early on, you said, and this falls under the category of successes, you said that you made this unbelievable list of what you wanted in a property. And my sense from your story was you got that list.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. And I got the guy, which is even, you know, the cooler part
0: of the story too. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And
1: I stuck with that guy.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We as human beings have to remember that the universe wants to give us everything that we desire. We just have to proclaim it. I've been in the, the urban farm here for 29 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. I had a list of 10 things that I wanted in a house that were a bit of a stretch. And I got all 10 of them.
1: That's amazing.
0: Yeah, it really is, isn't it? Well, you experience that too. Yeah. We just have to remember, we have to ask. That's right. Yeah. You just have to ask. So what drives you?
1: I think what drives me kind of continuously is just kind of what we're talking about. It's this idea that people are going to ask for what they need. And if you have the strength to give it to them, you should. And the times when you don't have that strength that you need a little help and you're willing to ask, you know, hopefully it'll circle back. I just believe really strongly that you have to give of your strengths. And for us on the farm, that's our food. That's what we're growing. That's that customer service and that communication. And it drives us every day. You know, I talk to our customers sometimes, you know, more times a day than I can even get to in the hours. But every day I talk to at least three or four of our customers and really hear what they need. And that drives me every day. You know, they have ideas of, of you know what we should grow and have you ever heard of and oh my gosh, my grandmother, you know, grew this one turnip and I can remember she would cook it every Sunday. Those type of things are what keeps us going all the time is seeing the light in somebody's eyes when they have a good meal, or they see you know a kid when they figure out that, you know, baby carrots don't just come in a bag. Those things are kind of amazing.
0: Big time. So how long have you been running your farm? What's the timeline on this?
1: So we planted our first tree. And our first box of vegetables in summer of 2014. And then we went to market for the first time. So still pretty quick. We're only coming up on four years this summer. And then we went to market for the first time in June of 16. It took us almost 18 months to get all of our licensing in place.
0: Cool. And what markets are you at? When
1: we first started, we did a farm stand at the end of our road, which is a craft beer bar. So we convinced the local ag weights and measures that if we were a little further east and had A dead end road that they would allow us to put a farm stand at the end of the road. And they were like, Yes, that's true. And I said, Well, we live on a dead end road. Nobody comes down here. And even though we're in the city, nobody comes down here unless they live here. And the end of my road is a craft beer bar. So I would be undercover, which is what you require. I would have permission of the property owner, which is what you require. And then additionally, I would have a hand-washing station and a bathroom. And they were like, we can't really disagree with you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That is good.
1: Yeah. And, you know, on our first Instagram post for that, we're like, we'll buy you a beer if you buy from us today. And that's where we started. And now we do our CSA drop-offs at the craft beer bar. So we have three craft beer bars. We do CSA drop-offs. We Mm -hmm. have a farm store on the property now that we've had built. And we have our larder items and our fresh produce there. And then we do our deliveries door-to-door to patients on Mondays. Wow
0: you just are epic this whole story is just amazing thank you you bet this is the reason i do this podcast is to hear from you because how did all of this happen it's a trick question a little tiny bug bite little tiny bug bite but it happened because you said so you said this is what we're going to do and you've done it and that's how we get stuff done in the world absolutely so if you could recommend one book for our listeners what would it be and why
1: So it's really geeky and hard to find. It's the Women's Institute Library of Cookery from 1918. Wow. (laughs) It's actually a textbook, an exam book. But the interesting part about it is it teaches food as a science from production to preparation. You know, it's not some random home ec book. It's literally talks about grains and how to grow grains and how to harvest grains and what the nutritional density of grains are and why you should put different grains together for your family. And then here's a recipe to do that. It's a really amazing five volume series of textbooks and I have them and I love them.
0: (laughs) Wow. Where did you find them?
1: I actually found them when I was deployed in Cuba on eBay. I found volumes like one, three, and four. And then my dad found me another volume and then my husband found me another volume. So now I have all five.
0: Nice. Wow. Yet again, another epic story. I love that. (laughs) So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners?
1: Say yes. I think all of us are so guilty of saying no or I can't or I don't. Just say yes. If somebody tells you that they think you would be good at dot, 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 do it. Because I can tell you all the amazing things happen after the ellipse. And if you're willing to say yes, you get to experience those things.
0: I call them my what ifs. You know, what if we could do that? Yeah. Why not?
1: Exactly. Nobody's telling you you can't.
0: Right. Who else is going to do it? You got to get out there and get busy. Start your farm. Absolutely. Start growing food. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Stephanie. Thank you. So how can our listeners get a hold of you?
1: So we're really busy on Instagram and that's Dickinson Farm 1888. And then also just our website, it's Dickinson.farm. No that's old school, just .farm.
0: Oh, nice. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Dickinson Farm. You can also find our podcast with Sarah Sanchez in episode number 269, All About Lyme Disease. She is one of the Lyme advocates out there in the world and so if you want to know more about lime from sarah that's episode 269 on the podcast we are your urban farming resource you can find our podcast on itunes google play stitcher and iHeartRadio. also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles podcasts webinars courses and more well that's it for today thanks for joining us on the urban farm podcast hey urban farm podcast listeners we want to know what you think about our podcast You've been listening to me for almost three years now, and I want to hear from you. I have some very specific questions, including what you like about our podcast and where we should be going next. The important part is I really want your opinion. I'm looking to connect with 50 listeners from no more than 10 minutes who are willing to share your thoughts. It's simple to sign up. Go to urbanfarm.org and look at the top menu. Sign up there. I look forward to chatting. If you think you can't grow food, or if you think the only food you have access to is what you buy at the grocery store, I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you learn to grow their own food. And I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that with the right knowledge in place, there is no such thing as a brown thumb. With this free webinar, you can begin making your garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to Iwantogarden.com and you'll receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember that's GARDEN to 44222 or Iwantogarden.com.
1: We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast.